and welcome to the Psychomedia Podcast. I am Timothy Swan. And you can call me Ishmael, and together we'll be discussing the funny side of psychology. Okay, that one really did take me by surprise. Because <laughs> that makes, is... me sound like, it makes me sound like the Paul Simon song. <laughs> you know? It's like, you I mean... can call me Ishmael. Yeah, it, 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 deep in the heart of mind and matter, there is a reason. Okay. Is that a quote from Moby Dick? It sounds like no, a quote a, from Moby Dick. The second one is a quote from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ah, okay. Well, <laughs> to be honest, they both feature whales prominently. <laughs> they do. They do. Well, that was, that was quite the laugh I just exuded. Okay. Uh, now, come on, Tim. We've, we've got one go on the weasel wagon, so let's make it a good one. <laughs> you see, the way that comes into context makes it sound really different. It makes it sound like this this podcast is a weasel wagon. We've got, I, you know, I thousands and thousands con- of some size of weasel. I would not contend that this podcast is a weasel wagon. I think that's fairly accurate, actually. Anyway... Week, Sorry, I just are... have to write that down now in order to satisfy your wishes. <laughs> um, yes. Hello, everybody. Uh, it's been too long. Uh, I'm getting really busy these days. It's getting really hard to record this podcast, but what the hey? Here we go. Uh, this week... don't, don't, don't bring the obvious sadness of the, <laughs> the, the distant doom of this show into this bed. Uh, yes, distant. Um <laughs> This week Only we're one being, month to go. <laughs> yeah, we're being we're being super topical and talking about the Facebook study that you may all have seen uh, on the news recently about Facebook being evil. Uh, but before that, in accordance with protocol, we must to the feedback, Tim. Yes, the FB that comes at the start of every show. Well, <laughs> <Yes>. then. <laughs> Uh, you encounter a felben. It has fifty <laughs> HP as a resistance to physical attacks, um, but it is weak against radiant attacks. <laughs> yeah, very. Um, so yeah, I received some feedback on Facebook. Uh, I suppose I shouldn't really put this at the start of the show because it's a re- request for a study topic that uh, we haven't done. Uh, from Richard says, hey, Tim, you haven't done a show on Jung yet, have you? I think I would have remembered that. It's a topic I'd love to hear about. Jung makes great literary theory, but how does he fare as actual psychology? And the answer um, to that is we don't know enough about Jung to do it in the time period we have to prepare this. Yeah, I don't don't I don't want you to think. uh, Sorry, who was the who was the feedback? Uh, Richard. Richard, I don't want you to think that we, you know, missed your feedback or that we ignored it. We we talked about it. And decided to reject your suggestion. <laughs> it's an important difference. I've done some like psycho. I had. A, did I tell you? I probably didn't. I had a psychodynamic supervision at work for the first time because uh, wow. I've never really known much about as a group supervision. Thank goodness. And I was somewhat chided by the uh, psychodynamic practitioner uh, that I think too much with my head and not enough. I'm not in touch enough with my emotions, which <laughs> made me really sad. I uh, my my interactions with Young have been very limited, but I uh, I did really like that that one um, like anarchic countercultural sitcom that they did about him in the in the early eighties. I knew it was going somewhere like this. I was stuck on it, Young you know? Rapunzel. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's all about the young ones. <sighs> hey, right. 
so, so what so, about you, Ben? Any feedback? I, I do have a little bit of feedback from Charles on the WordPress. Uh, he says, you had to Google information about Pinky and the Brain, you poor deprived people. Pinky and the Brain gave us this bit of brilliance, and he links to the amazing, wonderful video of Pinky and the Brain singing a song about the brain uh, called Brainstem, which is joyous and wonderful. If you haven't seen it, it will obviously be linked in the show notes. Frankly, it should be linked in all the show notes. <laughs> and uh, this is particularly relevant this week because Christina, who is doing a teaching course at the moment, used this as the intro- like the opening to her introductory session. Hooray! Which is fantastic. So uh, at various points through this show, Tim, while you're talking, I will occasionally butt in with Brightstem! Brightstem! That's a good impersonation, given that, you know, I was recently... Oh, this week, by the... Oh, I, uh, sorry. Um, but it's a Pinky and the Brain connection. I was recently on a podcast with someone who recently did a podcast with the voice of Pinky. Wow, um, that's amazing! I know! One degree of podcast separation from Pinky <laughs> himself. And so, Ben, you have two degrees of podcast separation from Pinky <laughs> himself. Um, yet I'm the one who does the better. Well, actually, no, I don't know. I haven't heard your opinion. No, so no, no. The problem no. was I, I watched the video, realized that I could do a passable pinky, attempted to do a brain, discovered that I cannot do a passable brain and was quite sad. Yeah. The same thing we do every night. No, it's terrible. The same thing we do every night, pinky. Trying to take over the world. It's the best I can do and it's not very good. Anyway... Uh, Charles also uh, suggests that there are extra points to the first one who notices the glaring neuroanatomical error in the brainstem song. Tim, did you note the glaring neuroanatomical error? I thought it was describing the limbic kind of system as the limbic lobe, but I'm not sure if that's just like anachronistic rather than glaring. Yeah, I mean, they do overuse the words lobe, I feel, but that is more of a rhyming issue than a neuroanatomical one. What about the um, forebrain? Where's the forebrain? Is that the f- another way of saying the front? It's next to the five brain, surely. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that, well, that one kind of got you, didn't it? <laughs> why, why, why was six scared? Because <laughs> seven threatened it with a knife. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that is feedback. No, 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 no. I've got more feedback. Of course you do. Well, it's about the last episode, which Feedback I... Feedback gluten. <laughs> Having a gluten allergy doesn't mean you can't stand fat people, Ben. <laughs> I thought that was one of the de- eight de- seven deadly sins. <laughs> so if if just, so, all got wheat all you. is going to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um. Continue. You Sorry, now I'm just back. trying to think of mispronunciations of the seven <laughs> deadly sins. <laughs> um, uh, no, well, my uh, my girlfriend sent me some feedback on the last episode on account of the fact that you know that we plan to do an episode on uh, the impact of the weather on behaviour, Ben. I'll perfectly prepared to believe you that that was the case. Yeah, but we I have no memory it. of that. <laughs> yeah, we did. And anyway, so I created a Franken podcast, including some new material. Uh, based on the weather and um, my girlfriend uh, works at the Met Office so kind of knows about it Um, and so apparently one of the studies was very weather inaccurate saying that 100% humidity and 0% humidity and she was pretty sure 0% humidity is impossible and 100% humidity would be fog so it just wouldn't work Um, but she was interested in the sea pardon I would have thought 100% humidity would be you are drowning (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Um, also, what, 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 
Sorry, I just wanted Did to... you just try and drown yourself with a glass of water? I, I turned into a murloc briefly. I was going to say, is it just going to be Bane voice, we've missed you! Um, <laughs> but yeah, there was, there was one about cloudiness and nerdiness, and that kind of triggered, it triggering each other, which was really interesting, and she thought it was interesting as well. And we talked a bit about seasonal affective disorder. Uh, Professor... It makes you talk- sad. Yeah, exactly. Um, that a professor at Oxford was crazy for her like evolutionary explanations of disorders, and her one for seasonal affective disorder was brilliant. Was to train women to get pregnant Always a at good the right start. time. <laughs> it's got the everything you know about you need to know about evolutionary psychology. In that, there's no way to prove it's true, and it's sexist, <laughs> rampantly misogynist. Yep. So uh, yes, and she said, well, she feels like people do get more sexually aroused in the summer. But is that to do with like seasonal variations or is that to do with people wearing less clothes? Well, I mean, you've heard about terror management theory. And as far as I'm concerned, the summer is just one giant mortality salience manipulation. <laughs> <laughs> Go outside, you'll get cancer. Well, let's stay indoors and have a grand old time. Yes, well... Thinking of having a grand old time. What grand old time have you had this fortnight, Ben? Ah, good, good segue. Uh, I've uh, I've been up to a lot uh, in this actually month. <laughs> yeah, we'll summarise. You're doing a fortnightly podcast. I'm doing a monthly podcast. They just happen to be the same podcast. I have so, started uh, to think about trying to find like a new co-host for those off weeks, Ben. <laughs> I had a robot Actually, one week. I'm, she wasn't very good. <laughs> yes, I, I remember the robot. Uh, I'm I'm okay with that. Um, so, uh, what have I? What has been occupying the majority of my brain this week has been metal and social psychology. So, same as <laughs> same thing we do every week. Yes. Uh, specifically, though, it, the the levels of metal and social psychology have been significantly elevated in the last couple of weeks because uh, a couple of weeks ago I went to Sonisphere, the metal festival in Nebworth. Uh, which was fantastic. Uh, saw four bands because uh, we just went, I just went for the Sunday. Um, I have I have some small notes on each of them. So uh, in order, I, I saw Mastodon, uh, who the experience of which was like uh, two tectonic plates having sex whilst playing excerpts from Moby Dick. <laughs> Hence the introduction. Why don't uh, you write for Pitchfork? <laughs> uh, then saw Real Big Fish. Uh, it's the second time I've seen them, and these uh, real big fish. For those that don't know, they they exude. They, it's weird. They exude a kind of tired professionalism, which is quite hard to picture in a ska punk band. I was going to say that's so depressing considering yeah, their music. They've been going such a long time, but nobody really cares because ska punk is not really a genre you'd ever want to experience sober, <laughs> uh, and we didn't. Uh, then saw the Dropkick Murphys, who actually, despite their kind of anarchic uh, Irish punk exterior are a highly scientific band. Um, not only because they appear to be the result of an experiment to produce a modern version of the Pogues with a singer who can actually hit a note. Oh, burn. That's not a burn. <laughs> I mean, it's totally justified. I hate the Pogues, but... Well, no, that is not justified. The fact <laughs> that he can't hit a note has nothing to do with the fact that they're not an amazing... that they're an amazing band. Anyway, um... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, he can. Uh, so he, the Leitinger can hit a note within the eighty-five percent confidence intervals laid down by the Commission for the Regulation of Male Folk Singing. But I like the fact they have the fifteen percent thing that, like, no psychologist would ever use. Carry oh, on. <laughs> it is folk singing. Um, 
But they also, like their set, involved a rigorous demonstration of the moderating effect of bagpipes and banjos on the relationship between rock music and awesomeness, uh, which is a, a, now a well-established finding throughout the heavier end of the music spectrum. And so finally, I saw Metallica, which has been a dream of mine since I was about 15. Although it has kind of um, cooled in recent uh, months and years, mainly months and weeks, what with just coming to the slow and gradual realization that at least 50% of the band are complete tools that I don't like. But anyway, I didn't pay for the tickets to the festival, so I kind of felt morally okay with going to see them. Um, but their gig was fantastic. They've got this new Metallica by request system, which basically allows okay. fans to vote for which songs are going to get played at any given gig, which is actually genius on a number of levels, because firstly, it provides them with a obviously a lucrative new revenue stream in text message charges. Ah, um, okay. Secondly, it sidesteps the continual vitriolic outpourings of their various fractured generations of their fan base by basically turning that hatred of this album or that album squarely back on the audience itself. <laughs> and finally, and probably most importantly, by removing the need to carefully design set lists from a band consisting of an aging frontman who is clearly starting to have difficulty remembering how real people are supposed to act, a lead guitarist who exudes the kind of boyish innocence that make you think he'd much rather be at home playing with his G.I. Joes, a half-man, half-crab Carl Drogo lookalike, who plays bass like, bass like he's attempting to channel the voice of God, and, well, Lars Ulrich. <laughs> Can I add a corollary to part two to yes. ensure that nothing from St. Anger is ever played? Well, it's funny you should say that. There was a big news story on some metal websites of a song from St. Anger <laughs> gets played at a, metal, a Metallica gig. Yes, and, and it was news. It was Yeah, n both news and not bad, because they it basically sounded nothing like it did on the album. Uh, uh, yeah, so that was really good. And then the, the, the social psychology thing, despite the fact that we've only got a minute left, was... Uh, I, I we went might have to, to break the rules for you here, Ben. Well, it's okay. I went to the European Association of Social Psychology's a big triannual conference in Amsterdam. So, you know, the biggest social psychology conference in Europe and one of the biggest in the world over four days. Uh, I presented, which was terrifying, but extremely good. The whole thing was basically... You jokes, I imagine. Uh, I opened with a joke. <laughs> oh, great. What was that I joke? Was, I was actually chairing the session, wow. which was ridiculous. I was probably the I least senior person in the room. And yet, for some reason, they asked me to chair. Uh, and so we were in the intergroup contact two session. And I joked that it was at 9am in the morning before the intergroup contact one session. And I didn't know why. And, uh, you know, that's... Uh, that that kind of broke the ice, I think. It okay. Was, uh, it did did you ask the question of whether the, the, the two would ever actually get to meet and kind of get rid of their unpleasant stereotypes about each other? <laughs> well, uh, had I not been more, more gut-wrenchingly anxious at the time... Yeah, I was going to say it's a bit unfair to be like, why didn't you think of this joke, Ben? That was your priority. <laughs> that, not I mean, chairing as, an intergroup conflict thing at as, the triennial thing. <laughs> Being a presenter at a major social psychology conference, obviously my my foremost thought was really nailing the punchlines. Well, why didn't you take psychomedia business cards? <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to network. <laughs> uh, on which subject, probably the best thing about uh, about the conference was me and my friend Simon, who went around basically uh, together 
kind of attending all the conferences were just constantly going like breaking into schoolgirl giggles and pointing going oh my god look it's linda trop and getting very excited about niche people from social psychology who we consider to be rock stars uh, several of whom well a couple of key examples of whom came up and complimented us on our talks afterwards which was just like keep it together man don't say anything stupid (laughs) this is why we have a feedback section because hearing that stuff makes you feel good especially when it's from someone who you kind of trust and believe in who you who you've been citing in essays since your first year of undergrad Uh, like it was some super cool stuff was um was uh what's his face struber there If he was, he was probably in disguise. <laughs> uh, but no, I saw, we saw we saw Susan Fisk talk about stereotype content He's... model. Uh, uh, I, I was complimented by Linda Trop of Pettigrew and Trop, who kind of wrote the meta analysis on intergroup conf- contact. And uh, I I met every single person that I cited in the introduction to my presentation, which was very exciting wow. and just just really good. Plus, Amsterdam is awesome. It was my first yeah. time visiting. Yeah, a uh, um, really cool city. Did you get high? This is what my girlfriend wanted me to ask you. Only, only uh, incidentally. I mean, <laughs> we didn't we didn't go to a coffee shop uh, with that in mind. But it, you you basically spent. I think that it's why the you, the city feels so chilled out, and I'm I'm sure it's partly to do with just the general contact high you get from walking. You know, it was actually remarkably similar to the music festival in that respect. Yeah, yeah, quite similar. Constant vague scent of, uh, of yeah. marijuana. Did, did I see you have a paper out as well? Or at least one that you're like a co-author on? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, uh, I'm like second to last author, which is... Oh, is, yeah. I... That means that I edited some of the... Ref- well, I edited all of the references and bit... And it was back when I was doing like face processing stuff. And it's a study about perce- the, like perceptions of the um, the burqa and the hijab, the, yeah, the Muslim yeah, yeah. face veil. I read um, the average... Which, I'll be honest, I haven't read the whole article. <laughs> uh, me neither. So that's that's okay. Um, but I'm sure it's very good. Well, I will stick the link in the show notes because it is someone we know who did it and well done yeah. to them for being published, etc. For sure. So, so yeah, that's that's my what move. Um, what's been what's been on your move this week? Uh, well, um, in like not this week, but last week, I had a double double cultural night uh uh, with my darling girlfriend uh, on the Wednesday, we went to see uh, Josie Long's Edinburgh preview of her show Cara Josephine. It's really good, especially if you, like me, have been like following Josie Long for ages and care a lot about her love life because it's <laughs> all about her like her love life. She's never done a show that's like this personal ever. Um, right. So just like yeah, tracking and like oh yeah, I know who that boyfriend she's referring to is, and because my brother saw wow. them having their like messy breakup in Edinburgh. Wow. <laughs> so but no, it is a really good show. It's really funny and it's really moving as well. And then on the Thursday, we went to see the National Theatre live broadcast of Skylight with Bill Nye and Kerry Mulligan. Wow. Awesome. Oh, I mean, they're such great actors. Yeah. And, you know, even like with the constraints of being on stage and filmed for live broadcast, which is not like it's not the optimum medium for acting because it's neither a film nor a play. And they are still so good. And it's a really good play. Um, I imagine Bill Nye would... I think he'd play well live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's like, and it was surprisingly funny. Like all of the program and stuff were highlighting the drama. And Mm. it was really like dramatic, melodramatic almost. But 
um, the like the kind of the the wit between them of their kind of exchanges as mm. these kind of ex lovers reunited. Also, you know, questionable believability on that. Bill Nye played it in its like original run eighteen years ago, and you're like, yeah, I can see how Bill Nye eighteen years ago was the right age to play that character. <laughs> but even so, his charisma, you're just like, well, it's implausible, but it's not unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, because it's Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, awesome. So yes, it was really good. I I don't know that there's anywhere to see it other than the live broadcast. Uh, I think it's still on in London, probably. So if you're in London, yeah, go and see it. It's great and probably entirely sold out. Well, if it was being filmed, then presumably it's going to come out at some point. Well, I don't know. I don't know if they bring out these live broadcasts because what they're doing with um. Oh, were they like show in cinemas, right? Yeah. Yeah. I saw um, them bringing back the live broadcasts, but they haven't released it on DVD. I don't think. Okay. Mm. Uh, so we're going to see the Frankenstein because goodness me, the Benedict Cumberbatch, Johnny Lee Miller, Danny Boyle, mm. ugh, and they swap roles. I mean, it's so clever. <laughs> anyway, anyway, should we talk about psychology? I suppose. I know, it's not this, really this, what we're this here. Podcast would be so much easier if we just did this for an hour. Yeah, but it would also be so much less interesting for our listeners because we wouldn't stand yeah. out. Yeah. Apparently. Supposedly. Anyway, psychology. So, yes. mood uh, induction and emotions and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we, we have talked about all of those things before, but we're looking at new areas. Uh, in Ben's case, something very novel. In my case, kind of an absolute classic that we haven't talked about. Uh, so, yes, a very famous mood manipulation study uh, by Schachter and Singer. And now I studied this for psychology A-level. I, actually, you know, my professor at Oxford in an interview told me I never should have done psychology A-level and that I should have done maths, which left me really baffled because I was trying to say, but if I didn't, I wouldn't be in front of you. And then he let me in. So I don't think he was implying I should have like changed my past to not be there. It's very confusing. Anyway, AS level, also very confusing. It was a really bizarre take on studying psychology. You could argue it was a sensible one because it was based on actually looking at individual studies. But we studied 20 studies. And then the exam was almost like trivia questions on those studies. And for right. each one, we noted like the methodological, the ethical and the interpretive issues. But only for these studies and not really like those generalizable skills. Because then you'd just be asked, name two ethical issues with the Milgram study. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's like two. I struggle to write two. I can't stop myself. <laughs> um, also, we got asked all the questions by John Humphreys while sitting in a big chair. Really emphasizes the kind of trivia nature of it. Anyway, I seem to remember we glossed over some of the details of the actual study of Schachter and Singer in the syllabus because the nuances of statistical tests or something were too tricky for AS level students. But here at Psychomedia, we love nuance. We love niche. And we're going to go boringly in depth on their dubious methods. All stats crit, all the... Oh, not stats. That's confusing. It's too roleplay. All criticism of statistics all the time. <laughs> well, maybe Shaq Trinsinger did fudge stuff. I might be misremembering even the trivia about the trivia. Actually, now I think about it, another part of the AS level was writing a discussion of a newspaper article that was discussing psychology, for which I criticised the Daily Mail, because that's what it's there for. Um... <laughs> I think that was, I really thought that was just a stupid exercise. I was like, why can't I be learning real psychology? But now I'm aware of how badly newspapers represent science. I realise yeah. it's actually more significant that we were being taught to critique that. If only I had a Guardian column, then I could combine psychomedia with AS level analysis on a weekly <laughs> basis. It's the dream. Yes, living the dream. So recently, I was recommending to comedian and actor Joe Enright that she should read some William James. We... <laughs> 
She was in the off. Oh no, she was in extras. She was in one of the Ricky Gervais shows. Yeah, it's <laughs> still name dropping. Oh right. Oh, I thought you were suggesting the reference wasn't landing rather than that it was. <laughs> <laughs> Shush your face. Twat's what Twitter is for, and you do it too when people tweet at you. <laughs> anyway. Uh, we right. strongly believe here at Psychomedia that William James should be considered the father of psychology, unlike Freud and Freud, because although just like Freud, James made pretty much everything up without much research and gasp, he was a philosopher. Difference was that he was basically right about most things and not crazily obsessed with sex and incest. Um, but We're basically also right. a little bit right about some things. <laughs> yeah, but. Well, yeah, I read an interesting argument that's like, but Freud's the father of clinical psychology. He he developed this whole idea of talk to people who are mentally ill and <laughs> instead of just like... A novel suggestion. <laughs> exactly. So like anyone in clinical psychology should owe their kind of, you know, a debt to him, even if we don't talk to the people in the same way anymore. Um, fewer couches. It's true. Um, anyway, basically right isn't the same as exactly right. And in emotion research, as you can remind yourself by listening to episode five, everyone has an opinion on what order the processes bodily, cognitive and affective happen in emotion. And James basically believes that the physiology comes first and then we figure out what we're reacting to. Modern evidence shows some evidence for this, at least sometimes. But Schachter and Singer disagreed and believed that you have to use other factors than just your physiology to interpret your emotions. I mean, I say they disagreed. What I mean is the evidence following James attempted to show this experimentally was lacking. And it only found this singular sense of excitation, whether the emotion was excitement or fear or anger or whatever. And one study they relied upon was a very similar study to the snakes in the scanner study, which was by Ooh. Axe. And I think I mentioned the Axe study in episode five as well. Basically... If you manipulate anger or fear, either by putting your participants in mortal fear of being electrocuted or by manhandling them brusquely, they show the same physiological signs. Hmm. To be honest, if you were going into the lab of Professor Axe, you should probably expect as much trouble as going to see Dr. Death. Uh, and Singer noted evidence that cognitions are important in emotion. Also, having mentioned the name Axe uh, in the last episode, which... Ben hasn't had time to listen to, and that's the only reason he hasn't listened to it. Um, I was listening to my excitement about Animorphs from the, so yeah, from that Franken podcast. Should note, I love cinnamon buns as much as Axe. Literally as much. Literally as much as a creature that's never had a mouth discovering for taste. Cinnamon buns, the greatest. So, if arousal... I just, I just, sorry, you need to give me a moment. I'm just being bombarded by a wash of memories from my uh, from my early teens <laughs> well you can have your proustian your proustian memory of hearing about cinnamon buns a girl turning into an elephant in the top floor of her house and crushing it well, powerful stuff you know our teenage years were a confusing time <laughs> in a way weren't our bodies all changing weren't we all animals into, into... <laughs> and some of wow. us turned permanently into hawks one in five of us Tell me there's no overthinking it on that. There must be. I don't think there is, but I'm going to write that down now. Damn well should be. <laughs> overthinking. <laughs> Adolescence. And animals. And animals. Oh. Yeah, because you know who, like, the ultimate villain is as well? The Vissel. Uh, vaguely. Oh, yeah, yeah. One of their mothers. It's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty Freudian, actually. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Oh, okay. You carry on. I'm going to Google Freudian analysis of animals. 
art, I hope that exists. So yeah, if arousal is unitary, that is to say, when you get emotional, your body pumps the same amount of adrenaline, it pumps the heart the same amount faster to show that you're emotional, then you've got to use cognitive information to work out what emotion is being felt. I mean, it does sound very backwards compared to our own exist experience. It's a bit like that joke about behaviorists. So behaviorists don't believe in the subjective, only the externally observable. Two behaviorists have sex and one says to the other, how was it for me? In this case, <laughs> the person asks, how was it for you? And you attend to your bodily state and then work it out. So Sachs and Singer do have a cunning experiment in mind to show us how it could work that cognition can interpret physiology in emotion. And they need to be cunning because normally the two are so interlinked that you can't really see how each contributes independently. As they say, if someone jumps out with a gun in a dark alley, your physiology changing and the thought that guy has a gun are pretty much going to happen at the same time. Hmm. I mean, I'd argue that this seems a pretty unlikely event, you know, quite an extreme example of fear. But then one of the authors was based in New York and the other in Philadelphia. So, you know, maybe there's lots of guns in alleys for them on a day to day basis. So obvious question. How do we know that physiology isn't enough on its own? Well, a bunch of researchers, starting with Marignon, uh, injected people with adrenaline and then asked them to introspect. I mean, you can try a version of this yourself at home. Run on the spot for about 60 seconds and then just try and introspect. Just look inwards. Just look inwards at your feelings. Because when your adrenaline's up, introspection is totally going to work. Uh, <laughs> what they found was that a lot of participants didn't feel emotional at all. And a lot who felt that they did felt, oh, as if they were emotional. So compared it to an emotional state only because that was the kind of standard comparison they had, uh, you know, rather than actually feeling afraid. Shantran Singer described this as emotion deja vu, which is not really accurate. It's not, I felt this way before. It's like, this feels like something else, but not quite like it as well. It's eerie, sure, no denying it's eerie, but it's not deja vu. And that's the sort of thing that I get angry about for some reason. <laughs> Technical <laughs> use of terms. <laughs> Uh, Marignon was also interested in showing the role of cognition and to show this would speak of, for example, to quote, their dead, their sick children or dead parents, both before and after the injection and found that they only strongly emotionally reacted after being injected with adrenaline. Psychology was a beautiful science in the 20s. Just that Milgram, Freud and Milgram ruining it all by making us bring in ethics. <laughs> So Sachter and Singer suggest that since Marignon's participants knew they'd be receiving adrenaline, they'd probably attribute their physiological arousal to the adrenaline, not to any emotion. Whereas if someone didn't know you'd injected them with an incredibly potent hormone, they might react differently. <laughs> now, attribution to these states is absolutely key to their theory of emotion. I'll let them lay it out clearly. He will label his feelings in terms of his knowledge of the immediate situation. Should he at the time be with a beautiful woman, he might decide that he was wildly in love or sexually excited. Should he be at a gay party, he might, by comparing himself to others, decide that he was extremely happy or euphoric. Should he be arguing with his wife, he might explode in fury and hatred. Or, should the situation be completely inappropriate, he could decide that he was excited about something that had recently happened to him. Or, simply, That gay party sick. he went to. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so, they proposed their theory. If one is physiologically aroused and doesn't know why, they'll use their immediately available cognitive information to attribute the arousal and thus determine an emotion. And if you present them with the right sort of bizarre cognitive clues, they'll get really confused and you'll accidentally unlock all the secret emotions, which normally you have to put in a code to do. You know, I was so proud of being able to get Vincent Valentine without needing a walkthrough. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, angry, brave, angry, brave. <laughs>
Actually, no, it would be, it would be for your aroused heart. placid, aroused placid. <laughs> <laughs> left brain, right brain, left brain, right brain. <laughs> anterior cingulate broker's area, anterior cingulate broker's area. <laughs> now we just need a very fast firing and accurate TMS gun, and we can unlock <laughs> the secret emotions. <laughs> Oh. Well, the Venn diagram—that—that's a joke with one of those ones with quite a small intersection in the Venn diagram. Fortunately, those people are our listeners, Ben. <laughs> at least if they are still listening at this point. So, if they do know why they're feeling these physiological signs, they'll correctly attribute their arousal to that cause. And if they only have the cognitive stimulus but aren't physiologically aroused, then they also won't experience emotion. So this is why this theory is referred to as the two-factor theory of emotion. Conditions are both necessary, but they're not sufficient. So they told participants that they were investigating the effect of vitamin injections on visual skills. They told them they were receiving a vitamin compound called suproxin, which I would be highly suspicious of, given that this was not only two decades after the invention of Captain America, but also a couple of years after his reintroduction to Marvel Comics in The Avengers. But apparently only one out of 185 participants turned down this injection. When will people learn to never trust psychologists? So, after agreeing to the injection of suproxin, a physician comes in and injects the participant, either with adrenaline, that's epinephrine to you Hellenists over there in the States, or a placebo, which is placempo for all you Hellenists over there in the States. Oh, you don't want all your medical terms in Greek. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the effects <laughs> of adrenaline start about three minutes after wow. injection <laughs> and usually last about 15 to 20 minutes. I am so happy with that joke and it's so stupid. I can tell. <laughs> I'm quite excitable in general at the moment. I, I, I think I may have injected myself with some suproxin. <laughs> Are you sure it's not a placempo? <laughs> See, it's just funny. I'm probably going to start using that term instead. <laughs> and when now. someone criticizes you, you're just like, no, that's just actually the, the Greek derivation. <laughs> um, yeah, classics burn. Uh, so they then split the group into three further conditions. Those that they told the real effects of the injection, those that they told some fake effects of the injection, and those that they told nothing about the effects of the injection. So the fake effects were numb feet, itchiness, and a headache. And the reason they went for another lie was that telling someone about symptoms, by definition, sensitizes them to scan their body for those symptoms. So it's good science, but it's poor ethics. Also, what drug can give you numb feet but not numb extremities in general? I mean, I'm really interested, I mean, apart from Saproxin. Saproxin definitely won't make you into a super soldier. Saproxin definitely won't mutate you and turn you into the abomination. Uh, they then, I don't know if the abomination had been written by that point, but who knows? Probably. I could check Wikipedia, but I won't. Um, yeah, all of that comic stuff is much older than you think. I didn't realise how old that... Uh, Always scan this section. What? Did you hear that? <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> I'm really Sorry. worried about what other random like female computer voices are going to come now. I was trying to make keyboard tapping sounds to suggest that I was Wikipediaing when the abomination was written. <laughs> <laughs> and instead you made a voice come out of your machine. Are you sure you haven't like bought her? I, I guess I unlocked the secret computer emotion. <laughs> <laughs> which was entirely emotionally neutral, which is quite scary. So then, yeah, they got their participants in a sort of waiting room, introduced a stooge or confederate, 
who would act in a euphoric or angry way to socially cue a certain emotion. Now, given how slapstick the euphoria condition is, I suspect that there may have been a choice of, say, three steps. <laughs> this waiting room was a mess with a bunch of paper, rubber bands and pencils. And the Confederates had a sort of script, a sequence of activities they would engage in. And for euphoria, this was doodling a fish, waste paper basketball, including jump shots, inviting the participant to join in if they haven't spontaneously, then making paper airplanes, throwing one at the participant, using rubber bands to make a catapult, building a tower out of folders, eventually knocking it down with a catapult, and going over to pick up the folders, finding a pair of hula hoops, putting one near the participant, and then using the other one. Now, remember, this is euphoria, and not the anger condition. Maybe I'm a grump, but since I heard about this study when I was 16 or 17, I've always felt that this confederate, while I was high on adrenaline, would end up getting punched, not being a <laughs> cognitive trigger for euphoria or attribution. And so this pattern was kept the same for half the participants as much as possible, though obviously if the participant did get involved, some improv would be necessary in that each out. I need an object, any object, just any object, and profession, any profession, profession you want. <laughs> then... The other half got the anger condition. In the anger condition, the experimenter asked the participants to complete a questionnaire, which starts with innocuous questions and gets substantially more personal. So basically, a normal psychological question. <laughs> the Confederate pres present provided a running commentary on questions, starting by complaining about having to receive an injection, complaining about the length of the questionnaire, about a question about what they ate, a question about hearing bells, what childhood illnesses they had, their father's annual income, and then the questionnaire gets brutal. For example, with a question f asking you to list which family members fit certain descriptions and prohibits you from writing none, with descriptions such as does not bathe or wash regularly, or seems to need psychiatric care. And so the Confederate complains and then crosses out that whole question. A question after that is, how many times per week do you have sexual intercourse? And the scale reads 0 to 1, 2 to 3, 4 to 6, 7 and over. Now, I would argue conflating 0 and 1 is problematic statistically. Even when you're doing fake science to make people really angry, you should be methodologically accurate. That's what I'm going <laughs> to learn. So yeah, at this point, the stooge tears up the questionnaire, throws the pieces on the floor, stands up and leaves. Presumably not because he's angry at being asked about his sexual activity, but because they conflated zero and one and he's a staunched methodologist. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I was in a training session on CBT yesterday and I was like, the trainers were both psychologists, but I think I was the only other psychologist in the room as rest because I'm mental health professionals like nurses and that. But uh, they were like, you know, okay, you know what? I could use a scale from one to 10. And the person was like, well, if you're going to do it, maybe one to nine. And she's like, oh, why? It's just like, odd numbers are important. Mid-numbers are important. There's no time to explain. But, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so or zero to ten. Yes, exactly. Zero to ten is a much more sensible way to do it. So the questions go on, ending with, how many men, other than your father, has your mother had extramarital relations? With a scale reading, four and under, five to nine, ten and over. So, you know, just to really... That's my favourite one. <laughs> So actually, it turns out that most of the experimental work into anger started as investigations into familial attitudes towards extramarital sex. <laughs> so they note that they never told the stooge what condition in terms of the injection or the information the participant was in, but they didn't misinform people about the symptoms in the anger condition. And I think the argument was that if the ignorant misinformed comparisons were significant in the euphoria condition, 
the experiment was invalid anyway. But still, you may as well. Like, once you've got that far, you're only opening yourself to criticism for a little bit of the cost of a little bit of extra work. Um, anyway, you know, just do it, just so you can get lots of statistical interactions. And there's nothing better than a statistical interaction. It's certainly better than a social interaction. So... They measured the emotional reaction both by observation and by using mood rating scales completed by the participants. And they had a coding system for observation, which provides, you know, a couple of interesting details about what participants actually did. For example, uh, throwing paper basketballs out the window at passers-by or using both hula hoops, one on the leg and one on the neck. Ah, the wild times of the 60s, all free love and paper basketballs. Actually, that is a good question. Is Did any of the research look at the potential interaction of adrenaline and LSD? You know, just in case... <laughs> And again, the mood questionnaires were cunningly concealed as being something that might impact the effect of suproxin. So they completed them still unaware of the aims of the experiment. And they also hid them amongst a lot of other questions about hunger and fatigue, etc. Although most of my emotions turn out to be one of those two internal states. <laughs> they also included a manipulation check to see if the adrenaline had actually caused the proper adrenaline symptoms or if the fake symptoms had been noticed. And they took pulses immediately before the injection and immediately before the questionnaires. Actually, I should say they took participants' pulse rate on two occasions. Otherwise, it just sounds like they stole beans. After the question... It might have been another aspect of the kind of annoyance manipulation, to be honest. I steal your beans! <laughs> uh, yep. I, again, so mimetic. It's such a serious film. And then it's just like, I drink your milkshake! <laughs> uh, after the questionnaire they thoroughly debriefed the participants and explained the experiments and then swore them to secrecy not ask them not to tell other students swore them to secrecy a vow that continues to this day <laughs> also 11 subjects were so extremely suspicious of some crucial feature of the experiment that their data were automatically discarded okay I'm glad that some students at the University of Minnesota yeah, weren't totally gullible yeah um, Fargo, it's a big thing again. Um, they made sure that there was... I bet Fargo was North Dakota now. Ah, it's all the middle. Um, they made sure there was no risk of... Stay violence. on target. <laughs> I need that for the soundboard. Amongst my <laughs> other Star Wars-based sounds. I say Star Wars-based sounds. I think I only have one Star Wars... How do I only have one Star Wars? Good ditto. <laughs> You know that guy gets blown up, right? It doesn't work out for him. Um, well, it's not working out for me either. <laughs> okay, right. So they made sure there was no risk of heart explosion, which I was really concerned about earlier in this prep. Also, I imagined that the injection of adrenaline was like in Pulp Fiction. Um, <laughs> they checked the university medical records, um, you know, just to check they didn't have any heart conditions that were pre-known. And it doesn't report that any of the participants died. So I guess none of them had heart conditions that weren't pre-known either. The participants were all male because women never get angry. Never. Um, <laughs> originally, that joke went, you know, just said, you know, just something like they just get cross or quiet. And then I thought, no, that's misogynistic. And it will make women cross. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, on the side of weird rather than misogynist. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's just stupid. That isn't really saying anything. Yep. And that's the way it's going to stay. <laughs> Commit to nothing, Ben, and then you can't ever get in trouble. So the adrenaline definitely worked, which was good. Else we'd all have been here for a whole bunch of nothing. 
However, it didn't work for everyone, so they excluded their data. There was only five of those guys, so it's not hugely problematic to exclude them. Although I would recommend those people see their doctors. You know, it's quite a problem to not react to an injection of adrenaline. <laughs> so those in the misinformed group did not report significantly more numbness or itchiness, so there was not an effect of suggestibility on the symptoms. And again, this is good because the biases of trying to please the experimenter called demand characteristics are a real problem in psychological research. In general, we want to give people what they want as well as make ourselves look good. That's the social desirability bias, that last one. And the more suggestible, the more likely, I guess, that the demand characteristics will play in the you know, part. Also, if Schachtrensinger discovered they could inspire numb feet, imagine they would use their powers for evil, or if not evil, then certainly quite callous version of good. So, <laughs> if you compare the informed and the misinformed in terms of euphoria, the self-report scores are significantly higher in the misinformed group. And indeed, they're also significantly higher in the ignorant group than the informed group. Well, you know what they say, Ben, don't you? You know, you know what they say, Ben, when they're discussing ignorance and euphoria, Ben. You know what they say, Ben, hey, you, know what they, you know what they say, you know what they say, non-informed is euphoric. So, ignorant, <laughs> sorry, a little bit of Stuart Lee in there. <laughs> um, ignorant can be considered a fair comparison with informed i feel but... like i should be in a bare room with a light shining on me <laughs> <laughs> this has been quite a like hammering you over the head experience i don't know what <laughs> happened but this is what happened <laughs> it's not even done yet this i know <laughs> ignorant could, I, could could you just put a flannel over my face and pour water on my head would that be quicker <laughs> not by skype i'm afraid <laughs> and we're back to I, I don't even know what the emoji for that would be um i would sorry just emoji. continue continue um so ignorant can be considered a fair comparison with informed although misinformed participants scored higher although they don't report if this is significantly higher than ignorant, which they suggest is because the participants who are not told anything might well blame the injection for how they're feeling. 28% of participants in the ignorant condition made some connection between their emotion and the injection, as opposed to 16% in the misinformed condition. They really shouldn't have called it the ignorant condition. I felt really bad throughout calling these like 60 or 70 people ignorant. What they are is uninformed, but I'm not going to change it else. It will get too confusing. The placebo conditions did not significantly differ from either the informed or misinformed and ignorant. So there was this kind of greater response without injections or it kind of fell between. The average certainly did fall between. And the same pattern um, was found in observed behavior. The self-report of anger, however, it didn't show much anger, but the observations of behavior really did. So it didn't correlate. So Schachtrensinger concluded that the students believed that getting angry at an experimenter would endanger the extra credit they were taking part in the experiment to receive. As additionally, after the debriefing, they were happy to admit to the experimenters that they were feeling angry. Despite this, the pattern of greater anger in the ignorant compared with the informed condition was found significantly in the self-report. So for observations of anger, the participants in the ignorant condition were highly angry, whereas those in the informed condition were not angry and even somewhat disagreed with the stooge or tried to calm him down. And additionally, those in the ignorant condition were significantly more angry than the placebos. And this is the only group where there was a significant difference from the placebos. They aren't, they, sorry, they are very conscious of that being a problem. There should be significant differences in all of them to back up their theory. But don't worry, there's no problem in this world that can't be solved by torturous statistics. 
Because what they kind of found is that obviously they'd already found some participants told them they'd figured out the injection affected them. So what if they exclude that group from the comparison, since those really have shifted themselves into the informed group? Well, it turns out that at that point, the comparison of the misinformed or the ignorant with the placebo becomes significant in both the anger and euphoria conditions for both behaviour and self-report. Hooray! If you slice the pie in a very specific way, it is different. And of course, those with a placebo or placempo, <laughs> that's just a fun word, um, have received an injection, even if it's only of saline. Surely, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of physiological arousal, at least for some I mean, a much more plausible reason is that response to the stew just triggered a genuine emotion, but let's run with Shakter and Singer's explanation for now. They measured the pulse at two points, if you recall, and the pulse is significantly increased in the second one. Um, that could show an adrenal response just from being injected with saline. Admittedly, they say if the pulse is the same or increased rather than reduced, then there's a sign of arousal. And the reason for this is that in the placebo condition, the predominant pattern is reduction rather than maintenance of pulse rate, probably because they've just had an injection versus they've spent a lot of time not having had, yeah, no, so anyway. So it's not unreasonable, if not really supported by theory. I don't know. Seems dodgy, but whatever. Um, those who show maintenance or increase in pulse rate in the placebo group, uh, suggesting activity in the sympathetic nervous system, the adrenal reaction, show significantly more euphoria than those that decrease in the placebo condition. However, those are more who are more euphoric do more. They play games, etc. So this could be a confound. Except same pattern is found in the anger condition, which has no changes in the levels of activity, only of emotion. And those who don't show physiological arousal in the placebo condition show the same emotion scores in both emotions as those in the informed condition. So it does still show, again, if you really kind of post hoc analyze it, the need for physiological arousal for an emotional reaction. So, when you statistically consider the implications of your theory on the experiment after the fact, you can find that the evidence supports it. I mean, that sounds <laughs> way more critical than I actually mean it to be. What they've actually done is they've realised they should have found some way to mitigate it, and they've had to use the participants' own reporting and measurements to do so statistically. But if they'd rewritten the, all of the study, they could have said they planned to do that from the start. So they went back and they tested all sorts of factors they'd encountered to ensure their partialing out was theoretically justified. So like using an injection of a drug that reduces sympathetic nervous activation, which is chlorpromazine, a typical antipsychotic, and showed that epinephrine enhances emotional reactions in rats. So I guess we can give them a pass, you know, I guess, as the grand arbiters of acceptable science and unacceptable puns. Pass. Tick. Allowed. <laughs> And so they conclude that to create an emotion, you can't just use a drug. You have to have a cognitive input too. Now, I'd like to conclude this by pointing out that emotion research has come on a long way since the 60s. And when it's not people like Lazarus and Science arguing the toss, or Ekman bigging himself up and basing a TV show on himself, uh, researchers like Berkowitz and Harmon Jones have found that, like most things in the brain, emotion is an activation network. Because it's not quite as clear as Schachter and Singer say that basically physiology or cognition or kind of subcognitive factors can all feed into a network. And if there's enough activation from one source or a combination of all the sources, you feel the emotion. And because I studied emotion at university and I finally understand it now, I have to share that knowledge with people who grasp it instinctively or normally. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done now. What this is all about, really, isn't it? <laughs> I'm done now. Ben, do you want to start your long study? <laughs> yeah, I was just, I just idly glancing over my, uh, over my prep, and you know, normally I write about, you know, page, page and a half. Yeah, got about about three pages today. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm on, I'm on page. Buckle up, listeners. <laughs> so, yeah. 
this uh, this episode was about Facebook, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm sure many of you will have seen the news stories recently about Facebook evilly using our user data unethically for the heinous end of science. And um, yeah, there, I, I I thought it'd be interesting to have a little dig into the study that was actually done. And a, a bit of a find out what's actually going on with it and whether it's any good and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, uh, here goes. Facebook, we all know it. We're all on it. And we all feel the same nagging suspicion that we are being covertly exploited by it. Now, many people felt that those suspicions were confirmed when a study appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, or PNAS, obligatory fnerf which involved never not funny never not funny which involved the subtle manipulation of facebook users news feeds without their explicit content now right off the bat i just want to say that i completely support the outrage at this violation of privacy the idea that some bunch of scientists could be deviously manipulating my thoughts and feelings for no better reason than to find out how the human brain works is frankly horrifying and obviously it's completely and totally different from the perfectly ethical and entirely natural way that Facebook normally manipulates my thoughts and feelings in order to make me buy products, watch movies, listen to music produced by companies that have paid Facebook for the privilege. Okay, that's fine. So, yeah, anyway. Uh, the <laughs> and it's also ethical for scientists to stab you with adrenaline and lie to you about why they're doing it. <laughs> yeah. Science, it's great. Anyway, okay, so the ethical issues around this study are actually kind of more interesting than the study itself, though only marginally and quite depressingly. So normally, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because it, it is kind of interesting. Normally, scientific research in the US has to conform to a set of standards set out by the Department of Health and Human Services Policy for the Protection of Human Research Subjects. Human Research Subjects, hard to say when you haven't got any breath left which is thankfully normally referred to simply as the common rule. <laughs> so I found quite interesting. However, because this study was not financed by any public research body, but was instead conducted and financed internally by Facebook itself with the assistance of researchers from a publicly funded university, it's technically under no obligation whatsoever to conform to ethical standards set out in the common rule which includes quibbling little things like asking participants for their informed consent. Can, now, I, can I put my hand up at this point? Yes. Does that mean that any private company in the US could do an electric shock-based experiment involving deception and pain? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Because, I mean, as long as they're not... Con uh, well, okay, they might get in trouble for, you know under you know like minor bodily harm or oh, some yeah, crime. alternative ruling crime but under ethical standards good to go this is why the only places that milgram and zimbardo studies have been replicated is on channel four yeah <laughs> so uh, as you know we're probably all subconsciously aware Big data companies like Facebook and Google are constantly conducting experiments like this on us. You know, varying layouts, content availability, present, presentation of information and the like. And this is usually under the auspices of improving user experience. Or, when you get right down to it, making more money. 
Facebook and Google are businesses. They're out to make a profit. And the fact is that legally speaking, so long as their manipulation of what we see and hear remains purely to boost their profits, they're under no obligation to ask us whether we're okay with it or even tell us that they're doing it. It's only once those powers are used for science rather than profit that ethics even becomes an issue, legally speaking, by which I mean not really ethically speaking. So what's the law and ethics don't match? <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Uh, hang on, where are we? <laughs> <laughs> now, so the authors of the paper argue that the Facebook data use policy, which all users are required to sign before joining the social network, constitutes sufficient declaration of consent because it basically says that Facebook can do whatever it likes with your data. However, once again, they didn't really even need to make this declaration legally speaking and frankly the fact that they did is kind of an ethical bonus probably <laughs> intended to make the paper slightly more palatable to the pnas editors who still nonetheless felt entirely uh, felt uh, the need to include an editorial expression of concern before the article <laughs> stating that and i quote Based on the information provided by the authors, PNAS editors deemed it appropriate to publish the paper. It is nevertheless a matter of concern that the collection of data by Facebook may have involved practices that were not fully consistent with the principles of obtaining informed consent and allowing participants to opt out. So in conclusion, the Facebook study was, in legal terms, completely ethical, and in ethical terms, no less ethical than anything else Facebook does with your data, your newsfeed, or your brain on a daily basis. Surely the point of being an editor and having concerns is that you then don't publish it in one of the major journals. Are they just afraid that they get scooped by like science or nature who'd be like, we'll put our note of concern in and it would be one sentence shorter. Professionally speaking, no comment. Ah, uh, yes. Sorry. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Anyway, now that... You've all deleted your Facebook accounts, but don't worry, Google is still tracking everything you do. We can get on to the actual psychology. Uh, so like I said, the study gets noticeably less interesting at this point because the experimental methodology is kind of dry uh, and uh, about as dry as it's possible to make population-wide mind control schemes, actually. And the results are also significantly less impressive than you could probably achieve by just climbing to the top of a small hill in Wiltshire with a portable stereo and playing Happy by Farrell Williams at full volume. Which would be kind of fun. Um, so the whole Is it idea... the one with Stonehenge on or not? <laughs> uh, that would probably amplify the effects, I would assume, through through ley lines. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, through the mystic combination of the druids. Ley lines? Never mind. Anyway. So the whole idea of the study was to investigate emotional contagion, which I'm pretty sure we've spoken about on the podcast before. Basically, it's just the idea that Emotional states can catch, they can spread between people. Remember we talked about uh, yawning as a contagion in some recent uh, episode. Um, in this case, the idea is that it, normally when you study emotional contagion, and a lot of research has been done on it, it's in kind of interpersonal face-to-face -face scenarios. The idea in this case is that maybe you can get emotional contagion through social media. Uh, and there is some idea to there is some evidence to suggest that at least through sort of direct online interactions, you can experience emotional contagion. So if someone expresses a particular emotion, you're then more likely to express that same emotion. 
So the idea of the study was to show that this can occur indirectly, even if you're not like directly interacting with someone, uh, like in a, a chat uh, chat room, for example, just ha- being exposed to their emotional expressions via your news feed uh, is enough to produce a, an emotional contagion. So what the authors of the study, uh, Kramer, Gilroy and Hancock did, was essentially to very slightly alter the frequency of positive or negative content appearing on the news feeds of 689,003 Facebook users. So that's a pretty big sample size, issues relating to which we will come to later. So technically, they actually ran kind of two studies, one in which they varied the amount of positive information and one in which they varied the amount of negative information. And the reason for this was basically that participants generally presented more positive information on the news feeds than negative information. And because the way that they carried out the manipulation, they needed to keep the two separate. Okay. So they defined their, or they determined their positive and negative content or the positivity and negativity of the content using a piece of software called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count 2007, uh, which we shall come back to later. And they it's basically just content analysis software, which counts numbers of positive or negative words, in, in, in essence. And they use this to filter what people saw on their news feeds over the course of one week, specifically the 11th to the 18th of January 2012. I like this. I like that I... So I have in front of me my Facebook feed from the 11th to the 18th of January 2012. So I can see what was going on when I was potentially participating in this study. Because we are... The thing I wondered is... I know there's 500 million users, so actually the probability is, like, quite small. But part of me wonders, could it be? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you never know. Looking at my Facebook feed from that time, if I was involved, then I was a pretty damn useless participant. That, <laughs> that's fine. I think uh, it uh, highlights of that particular posting involve a heavy metal cover of the Elder Scrolls Skyrim theme tune, the uh, 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 status in which I cite Dragon Force Revival Baby feeling 16 again, and my friend Chairs posting a YouTube video of the Channel 4 cartoon Business Mouse, which... Everyone needs to watch, and is therefore going in the show notes. Alrighty then. Um, so yeah, uh, they so for the manipulation, participants were either assigned to experimental or control conditions, and in the experimental condition, every time they visited their newsfeed, there was a variable percentage chance that any that positive or negative post would be hidden. Uh, in the control groups, there was a chance that any any post could be hidden regardless okay. of its content. So basically, anytime you logged onto your newsfeed, there was between a 10 and 90% chance that kind of varied consistently across the whole sample that ne- uh, a negative post would be hidden. And the authors point out that they're not actually deleting these posts. The posts are still available to be viewed on their own profiles and on the, uh, the person posting them's profiles and that they're not doing anything with private messages or anything like that, and that actually a post which is hidden on one visit to the newsfeed could appear in a subsequent visit to the newsfeed. So so the most recent button exists and everyone with any sense uses that? Yeah. So there's basically (laughs) hedging their ethical bets once again. And, uh, but also 
worth noting because it it really emphasizes this idea that this was a very very subtle manipulation like this is not an intense this is not injecting someone with adrenaline and then yeah. forcing them to participate in irritating tasks <laughs> yeah uh, asking them to rate their mother's infidelity this is this is super super low profile so speed does that anyway <laughs> people do it willingly yeah so to measure the effects of the manipulation, the research basically used the same anal- uh, content analysis software to count the percentage of positive and negative words in posts made by the participants themselves. Uh, so they found that in the study where positive content was manipulated, i.e. participants had a chance, in the experimental condition, had a chance to have positive posts hidden from them. Uh, these participants in the experimental condition posted significantly more negative words and significantly fewer positive words than those in the control condition. Similarly, in the study where they manipulated negative content, participants in the experimental condition posted more negative words and fewer positive words. To which the authors concluded, aha, aha, emotional contagion, tra la 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 la, hashtag yellow swag, hashtag might drop. All <laughs> words to that effect. So... To my concerns with this study, beyond and excluding the ethical dubiosity, let's start with the old classic. Effect size. The effect sizes in this study were absolutely minuscule, like microscopically tiny. Like if one of the editors were a single-celled paramecium, he would twirl his cilia and say, I say, old chap, that's rather small. In this scenario, the paramecium has a moustache and a monocle and is named Jeffrey. (laughs) (laughs) so in real terms the largest change in word valence was 0.1 percent and the smallest was 0.04 percent so that is a 0.1 percent decrease in positive words or decrease in negative words based on the manipulation now according to these studies where there's just too much power exactly exactly now according to cohen's 1988 uh, Bible on the statistical power analysis for the behavioral sciences, a Cohen's D effect size statistic of 0.2 is considered small. And anything smaller than that should be considered very carefully since it's arguably negligible in terms of predictive value. The largest Cohen's D found in the Facebook study was 0.02, uh, which doesn't have a kind of uh, qualitative size label in the Cohen book, but if it did, would probably be something along the lines of pathetic or Freuding small. <laughs> uh, now, it should be noted that the authors do raise the issue of small sample size. You would kind of expect them to because they reported the sample size, and if you, usually if someone has the wherewithal to report the sample size, they tend to then go on and talk about it. Um, they do raise the issue, uh, but it should be noted also that in raising it, they don't actually provide any solution. If you mention something, that's fine. They argue that even though the effects are small, they do still matter because, and I quote, given the massive scale of social networks such as Facebook, even small effects can have large aggregated consequences. Well, congratulations to the authors on their honorary doctorates from the Max Megalon Institute of Slowly and Painfully Working Out the Surprisingly Obvious, awarded for pointing out that if you add together 700,000 tiny things, you end up with one quite big thing. The problem is that still isn't particularly interesting psychologically because despite ostensibly being a test of emotional contagion, the study doesn't really manipulate or measure emotions. So all you're saying really is that 
a very, very minor manipulation of the presentation of positive stimuli changes people's provision or posting of positive stimuli by a minuscule amount. Okay. Is there research that says the two are linked? Uh, probably, uh, in fact, almost certainly. You think they'd cited? Yes, they did, and um, or at least they do mention the idea that the the linguistic inquiry and word count software that they used has been related to actual emotional expression, uh, and in emotional experience. But in the few studies that I had time to look at, it seemed fairly tentative, and the idea that positively valenced words will be associated with positive emotions makes perfect sense. It's whether they are causally related to them and whether it's just a case that if you are feeling more positive, you're going to present... Like, the correlation is there. The causation element is what I'm missing. Yeah. And the idea is that positive words are suitable proxies for positive emotions and negative words for negative emotions. Like, the experience of the Facebook users... It's in, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's entirely possible that these results could just be a priming effect. Like if you're seeing more positive things on your Facebook wall, you might be inclined to present more positive things yourself. Now, that may very well have a knock on effect on emotions, but that is not what this study is testing. Yeah. It's, by that logic, you could run the same study where you measure the occurrences of words relating to cheese on someone's Facebook wall and expect to find that participants then post more about cheese. Like, isn't that essentially what Facebook is doing with its normal manipulation of what appears on our Facebook wall? They want us to buy certain things or to watch certain things, so they present those things more so that people will post about it more. Like, it it all have, seems to be the same thing. I have a much bigger methodological issue with this study. I don't okay. consider it. Right, so you've got a linguistic um, kind of, what, categorical analysis or content analysis thing. Have you read any of the kind of quality of English on Facebook. Do you I, really think a machine can process that stuff well, accurately? To that point, uh, as I mentioned, the, the, the software that they used is called Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count 2007. And I don't think it even matters that the quality of language on Facebook is pretty low because the quality of the software is pretty crude. Uh, huh. the, the, I mean, the, the, the people who make the software themselves point out its limitations. They, you know, on their website, they say this, this is a fairly, you know, this is fairly limited. And they, they note several of the limitations. For example, the software is particularly sensitive to bias caused by repetition, sarcasm and negatives. <laughs> so going through these in order... Uh, the authors have said people don't tend to repeat the same thing over and over again but the software doesn't really take account of that it basically literally all it does is count the number of positive and negative words so repetition of concepts but not words produces an inflated estimate so that means if for example you were to post some variant of justin bieber is great awesome wonderful spiffing a golden-haired angel child several times a day for a whole week that would receive a much larger rating of positivity than posting, I just got married once. Aha, okay. So that's that, point one. In practical terms, this means that the software is overly receptive to the irritating, repetitious ramblings of the sort of people you tend to block on Facebook. <laughs> or as I have chosen to dub the phenomenon, asshole inflation. Great, there's an image <laughs> we all needed. <laughs> so 
Uh, also, I, I mentioned sarcasm and negatives. Uh, this is fairly straightforward. The phrase, my pet weasel is, is no more. My life has no meaning, no love, no happiness, no joy, actually receives a negativity rating of zero and a positivity rating of 17.65. Uh, similarly, uh, for sarcasm, the phrase, Robin Thicke is a paragon of gender equality and should definitely not be tarred and feathered whilst onlookers chant, I know you want it, is again 0% negative and 4.717% positive. How do I know these figures so precisely, you might ask? Well, yet further demonstration of the fact that the guys making linguistic inquiry and word count are much more awesome than either their own software or the uses that have been made of it. There's actually a free online version of the program where you can enter any piece of text and get the same positivity and negativity ratings that were used in the Facebook study. Now, this is science. <laughs> so, I will include the link in the show notes, but here's a couple of little insights to help illustrate why the results of the Facebook study might be less than valuable. The phrase, I just got married today, is rated as emotionally neutral, not percent positive, not percent negative, as is, my parents just died. And... I have just been made king of Belgium. <laughs> I think you see the problem. I mean, at least two of those sentences clearly represent extremely negative emotions. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, and, and and one of them means that you'll probably be Batman one day. <laughs> um, but, okay, so th th those are illustrative, I feel, but they are a little unfair because the software is designed to analyse larger bodies of text. You know, often Facebook posts are, are longer uh, not just isolated sentences. So I decided to try it out on what I consider one of the greatest sources of emotional content available to humanity, the miracle of music. So here are the statistics for the lyrics of a few songs that I thought nicely represent the extremities of emotion. So starting... Oh. So, Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton, which is Ro Rolling Stone's saddest song ever. 9.09% positive... 0.65% negative. What? Uh, which is actually less negative than Happy by Farrell Williams, which is only what? which is 0.87% negative. Now, okay, that's not a big difference. And admittedly, Happy by Farrell Williams is actually only 4.33% positive, which is less positive than A Desolation Song by Agalock. Yes, yes, I'm so glad the Desolation song is there. That's what I was waiting for. Which is mine and Tim's fa favourite depressing song about drinking yourself to death in front of a fire. Uh, that one is 5.49% uh, positive, so at least 1% more positive than Happy by Farrell Williams, and is 9.15% negative. Uh, to be fair, I seem to remember we had a discussion where you're like, actually, it's a cathartic song. I, I think it probably is, but it's not a happy song. <laughs> yes, that's true. Uh, Tears in Heaven, once again, more positive than Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin. Um, uh, it, it actually works. One band I found for whom it does work quite well is R.E.M. Uh, so Shiny Happy People is the most positive song that I managed to find at 21.2% positive. 0.65% negative, and Everybody Hurts is 1.19% positive, 8.33% negative. So they they okay. are this the Facebook study works as long as you're REM. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Uh, when you get right down to it, what this study tells us is that if they wanted to, Facebook has the power to make us write 
slightly more positive or negative words on our Facebook pages, which, once again, is most likely less evil than some of the things Facebook could do or is indeed already doing. Wow. And doesn't tell us much about emotional contagion, in my opinion. Yeah. Also, <laughs> submitting lyrics to... Uh, to uh the word uh the content analysis software is fun yeah i was gonna say that's the real conclusion i uh, I, I had great fun trying to cut kind because of, it, it becomes very it, it rapidly becomes very easy to game the system but that in itself is quite fun too yes <laughs> so okay popular uh, conclusion section that eludes the last 20 minutes that we heard yes the award-winning conclusion section. I, well, you should probably go first. Emotions, they are a Emotions thing. rely on physiology and cognitions. <laughs> now, those cognitions could come from social networks, but then, would you say they did? <clears throat> um, yeah, is what I would say. <laughs> exactly. What I would say is that Facebook is scary and, and bad things. And, yeah, but not for the reasons of this study. <laughs> and submitting lyrics to content analysis software is a fun way to spend half an hour when you're bored so you mean we should be doing prep oh wait yeah. sorry you said bored i was doing prep <laughs> <laughs> i was picking songs i was submitting them i was That's carefully right. noting down the percentages <laughs> yeah, this is the kind of hard-hitting science content that our listeners deserve nay demand how is your doctorate going <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I would like to see you submit your doctorate to the thing. Oh God! Ah, <laughs> ah, I should. I but really the percentage should. will probably be negative. I mean, I'm tempted to submit what I have written of it thus far. <laughs> <laughs> you probably should stop using the word "submit." It's going to give you feelings. Um, yeah. Th now there's a mood induction technique. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um, if there's other words you want to send to us on social networks that might disappear from your newsfeed, because, hey, uh, Psychomedia is always positive, uh, then maybe you should go to uh, facebook.com slash Psychomedia. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm phasing out. I was trying to think of a joke around Google's I'm feeling lucky, but it didn't come to anything. So, yes, you should go to facebook.com slash Psychomedia. You should tweet at us at Team Psychomedia or at Tetrarchangel if you want to badger Tim specifically. Um, okay, then... There's another one. Email. Email. Psychomediapodcast at gmail.com. I've just remembered what I got distracted by was iTunes. Leave us a comment on iTunes. And a review. Yeah, you totally should. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts recently where they say, leave us reviews and comments on iTunes. Mostly it they helps say us. specifically leave us five star comments uh, on uh, reviews on iTunes. Yeah, it helps us. That's weird. But please do. Go leave us a review. It's an a odd numbered system, so we don't really mind, provided it's within <laughs> the one to five. Like, it has a midpoint, so we're fine. Yeah. If you could include in your review, like, four or five other, you know, uh, rating scale items, which you then score us on so we can provide and we can produce a, a latent variable to include in our in our show. Oh, oh can. can we do some factor analysis? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We will. We will run a, a solid CFA and see what happens. Uh, and of course, uh, if you don't want to do any of that, then at the very least, you should head to psychomedia.wordpress.com for the show notes, which will contain Business Mouse, uh, the linguistic analysis software used in the Facebook study. Uh, they will include the Pinky and the Brain song about Brainstem. Brainstem! And yeah, a lot, lot more. Delightful sundries. Uh, yes. So until until next time, 
when in uh, a, a couple of weeks from Tim and presumably four for me. I was going to say, we're coming up on episode 100. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. It is. I'm excited. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. What are we going to do for it? Maybe we'll do Young. Maybe we won't. <laughs> I was going to say, maybe we'll do one of the many other requests. <laughs> or maybe we'll just do something completely different. Or maybe that's what we'll do afterwards. It's we'll a, see. It's a world of possibilities. But until next time, uh, stay psychological, San Diego, and we'll see you next time. Following recent allegations, Facebook has updated their terms and conditions. Please read the following and confirm that you agree. Statement of Rights and Responsibilities. This statement of rights and responsibilities, statement, terms, or SRR, or carte blanche, derives from the Facebook principles. Yes, really, no, they really exist, click the link, and is our terms of service that governs our dominion over users and others who interact with Facebook, and indeed anyone, whether they interact with or use Facebook or not. By using or accessing or thinking about Facebook, you agree to this statement, as updated from time to time in accordance with section 14 below. Don't worry, we won't update you on what those changes are, and we certainly won't get you to agree again. Additionally, you will find resources at the end of this document that help you understand how Facebook works. Section 1. Privacy. Your privacy is very much a thing of the past, both technologically and culturally. We designed our data use policy to make important disclosures to advertisers and the NSA about how you use Facebook to share with others and how we collect, retain forever, and can use your content and information for whatever nefarious purposes we desire. We insist you read the data use policy. We insist you share it with your friends over coffee. The data use policy is the one holy truth. Oh, and you can use it to help you make informed decisions. We swear. Will instantaneously cause gratuitous arguments with romantic partners. Facebook holds no liability for annulment and... This jurisdiction transcends nation states until the day of awakening on 2008-19, wherein... Waive your rights to possession of vital organs, skin, bone marrow, and... Stabbed repeatedly in the face with a fencing foil. Thousands and thousands of tiny weasels. Copious bleeding. Nuclear. Desecration. Biohazard. And finally, any remaining assets to be donated to a donkey sanctuary. Please tick the box below to confirm your agreement. Well done. Now get back to Facebook, you big silly.